0: Hey there, listeners. I'm Isaac Butler, host of Slate's new podcast, Lend Me Your Ears. The show is a six-part miniseries exploring how Shakespeare dramatized the political anxieties of his day and how his plays speak to our own. In this episode that you're about to hear, we talk about Julius Caesar and why a playwright living under a monarchy in the late 16th century might be so fascinated by the fall of the Roman Republic. You can find out more at slate.com slash Shakespeare and subscribe to Lend Me Your Ears wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Welcome to Let Me Your Ears, a podcast about Shakespeare and politics. I'm Isaac Butler. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a play that still has the power to upset theatergoers today.
1: Um, And of course, we know Julius Caesar's character as the lead, when that character was brought forth and it was Donald Trump. I mean, they didn't specifically say it, but his hair, blonde, reddish, had the tie tied too long. He was obviously the leader. Um, Knowing where that was going, I was appalled.
0: Act One, That Part of Tyranny That I Do Bear. Right after the election, I sat down and reread Julius Caesar. It's actually where the idea for this podcast was born. I reread it because I was deeply worried about the state of our republic. And I was struck by this speech where Brutus is contemplating killing Julius Caesar because he's worried Caesar will become a dictator.
2: The abuse of greatness is when it disjoins remorse from power and to speak truth of Caesar. I have not known when his affection swayed more than his reason, but tis a common proof that lowliness is young ambition's ladder whereto the climber upward turns his face. But when he once attains the utmost round, he then unto the ladder turns his back Looks in the clouds, scorning the base degrees by which he did ascend, so Caesar may. Then, lest he may,
0: prevent. What we've just heard is Brutus deciding to take an extraordinary risk to save the Roman Republic. And that risk in turn dooms the Roman Republic once and for all. The fall of Rome took about a century, and Shakespeare's Julius Caesar tells the end of that story. It depicts the death rattle of the Republic as it dissolves into recrimination, violence, and mob rule. In the process, it asks some really big questions. Do we overestimate the power of reason in politics? When the Republic is in crisis, can it be saved by any means necessary? Once violence enters a political system, can it be stopped when it's no longer useful, Or is it like a drop of ink in a glass of water, transforming everything around it? How will we know when we've reached the point of no return, where each step taken to solve the crisis just causes bigger and bigger crises? These are scary questions to ask. At least I find them scary. But one of the things that theater allows us to do is ask the scary questions in a safe environment. And in Julius Caesar, we get to see these questions play out in a story taken from history. Here's how that story goes. We open in Rome. It's the Feast of Lupercal, a citywide festival that purifies Rome and averts evil. Caesar has just returned victorious from a bloody civil war against Pompey, his only real rival. He's now the most powerful and popular man in the known world. So he's being feasted. There's parades in his honor. And there's talk about making Caesar king. Now, this is a huge problem. Rome's origin story is about heroic citizens overthrowing an oppressive monarchy. Sound familiar? And the Romans are so anti-monarchy that often accusing your political opponents of wanting to become king is a good way to get them killed but Caesar is so popular that this time it seems like it might very well happen. This deeply frightens a group of Roman senators, led by a guy named Cassius. Cassius, he's like the power behind the scenes, and at the top of the play, he's already organizing a conspiracy to assassinate Caesar. Over the course of the play's first act, Cassius recruits Brutus, a friend and political opponent of Caesar's, to lead it. Now, It's important to keep in mind, Cassius mostly wants to kill Caesar because Caesar's rise threatens his own ambitions, but Brutus believes their cause is just. That's what that speech you heard at the top was all about. Caesar will become a king, and when he does, his unlimited power will corrupt him. Since the government has totally broken down, the only way to stop that is to kill him. But Brutus makes three mistakes. The first is assuming that the public will support the assassination once it's explained to them. He thinks if the conspirators take responsibility for their actions and make a case to the people, everyone will see they were motivated by noble intentions. The second has to do with Caesar's right-hand man, Mark Antony. For the first half of the play, Mark Antony lurks in the background. He just kind of seems like a lackey. Cassius wants to kill him, too, because he's clever and he could cause problems, but Brutus convinces Cassius
3: to let Mark Antony live. I think it is not meet Mark Antony, so well beloved of Caesar, should outlive Caesar. We shall find of him a shrewd contriver, and you know, his means, if he improve them, may well stretch so far as to annoy us all. Which, to prevent, let Antony and Caesar... Fall together.
2: Our course will seem too bloody, Caius Cassius, to cut the head off and then hack the limbs like wrath in death and envy afterwards. For Antony is but a limb of Caesar.
0: We'd let us be sacrificers, but not butchers, Caius. So, the conspirators kill Caesar on the floor of the Senate. Caesar cries out, Et tu brute. When it's over, as the conspirators dip their hands in the blood of Caesar and spread it on their arms, they are approached by Mark Antony. Once he realizes they aren't going to kill him, Antony asks if he can make a speech to the people, and Brutus makes his third error. He agrees to it. This gives us the play's majestic centerpiece the competing orations of Brutus and Mark Antony over the body of Caesar. It's a competition that Brutus will lose. See, here's the thing. Brutus believes the people can come together and reason their way forward to the best solution. That's the assumption that undergirds the Republican system of government. And Brutus is a stoic. He's devoted to rationality, to the ideal of taming the unruly passions and assessing things coldly and clearly. He might remind you of Barack Obama, devoted to deliberation, compromise, the assumption of good faith on all sides, and... Like Obama, like all U.S. presidents, he believes that there's a reasonable way to use violence to accomplish political ends. But his faith in both reason and violence may be misplaced. Brutus makes a solid case to the people about why he killed Caesar. His speech is blunt, maybe even a little clumsy. Unlike the rest of Brutus's lines, it's delivered entirely in prose. Now, prose is usually a signal in Shakespeare that a character is speaking in the language of the common people. But in this speech, it's also a signal that Shakespeare is dialing down Brutus's rhetorical gifts. If there be any in this assembly, any dear friend of Caesar's, to him
2: I say that Brutus' love to Caesar was no less than his. If then that friend demand why Brutus rose against Caesar, this is my answer. Not that I loved Caesar less, but that I
0: loved Rome more. So that's Brutus' case to the people. I loved Caesar, but I had to kill him for the good of Rome. Next, Mark Antony steps up and actually carries Caesar's body into the crowd. He describes Caesar's heroism and Brutus's betrayal. Rhetorically speaking, he wipes the floor with Brutus in one of the most famous speeches ever written.
4: If you have tears, prepare to shed them now. You all do know this mantle. I remember the first time ever Caesar put it on. It was on a summer's evening in his tent that day he overcame the nervier.
0: Over and over again, Mark Antony points to Caesar's wounds, and with each wound he embellishes the image of Caesar a little bit more, swaying the crowd's affections. Look, in this place ran Cassius his dagger through.
4: See what a rent the envious Casca made? Through this the well-beloved Brutus stabbed, and as he plucked his cursed steel away, mark how the blood of Caesar followed it, as rushing out of doors to be resolved if Brutus so unkindly knocked or no. For Brutus, as you know, was Caesar's angel. Judge, O oh you gods, how Dearly Caesar loved him, this was the most unkindest cut of all, for when the noble Caesar saw him stab, ingratitude, more strong than traitors' arms quite vanquished him. Then burst his
0: mighty heart. Once he's got the crowd right where he wants them, he reveals that Caesar so loved the people of Rome that he left them lands and money in a public trust. There isn't much logic to be found in Mark Antony's argument. It's pure demagoguery, emotional persuasion of the highest order. But it works. The ground has shifted under Brutus' feet. The rules he operated by are now obsolete. Mark Antony whips the Romans into a frenzy, and then he uses that frenzied mob to seize power. The Republic has fallen, and Brutus, Cassius, and their armies have to flee Rome. That's just the first half of the play, believe it or not. In the second half, the play and its world shift radically. If the first half is a political thriller, the second half of the play is like a battlefield horror film. Brutus and Cassius turn on each other. The ghost of Caesar appears to Brutus, foreshadowing his fall. The conspirators are defeated in battle by Mark Antony and Caesar's adopted son, Octavius. Brutus and Cassius both commit suicide, and Antony and Octavius are left in charge. So look, it's not a happy play, right? But these aren't happy times, and you can see why it's a play we turn to when we worry about our society's future and whether or not our own republic is about to collapse. Or as Helen Shaw, critic for Time Out New York and Four Columns, told me,
5: I do think that for people who are thinking about citizenship and thinking about political action, it's not a bad play to have in your head.
0: Helen knows Julius Caesar very well. She's seen it performed many, many times, and I wanted to talk to her about what the play has to tell us.
5: Well, you can't get away from the fact that its idea about people in groups is cynical and devastating.
0: You see, every time a group of people in Julius Caesar gets together to decide something, they come to the wrong decision. The elites are deluded enough to think that murdering the most popular politician in their nation's history will work out well. And the common people? Well, they're capricious, fickle, easily swayed, prone to violence. They literally rip a guy apart on stage because he shares the same name as one of the conspirators. This is a profoundly unstable society, and over the course of the play we see it collapsing like a poorly cooked souffle. Here's Helen again.
5: Most Shakespeare is about monarchy. And it is a closed and functioning system in Shakespeare's plays. You have kings when they die. What we're doing is we're all holding thumbs that we're going to get another king in so things can be stable and good again. And in Caesar, you have him and in Coriolanus, you have him showing us a world where monarchy is actually a dirty word. And for us, for readers who are reading in the 20th century, with our absolute uh, acceptance that constitutional democracy is the way forward and the way to progress and the way to goodness and light. The fact that you have these two plays, Coriolanus and Julius Caesar, in which the rule by the many is broken, nauseating, misguided, and easily disrupted is something that I think a 20th century audience was particularly primed to see.
0: Julius Caesar was quite popular in the mid-20th century. We had just seen the Russian Revolution curdle into Stalinism and the democratic rise of Hitler. A recent history had shown how easily rule by the people could become rule by dictators. Our own system of government has a lot in common with Rome's. Like the Roman system, we use several different mechanisms to keep both the mob and powerful individuals from taking over. One is a complicated system of checks and balances, but another isn't a procedure or a law. It's an ideal the shining city on a hill that Kennedy and Reagan and Bush and Obama have all described. In Caesar, that ideal actually helps motivate the conspirators. Brutus doesn't want to kill Caesar out of jealousy. He straight up says that he likes Caesar. Brutus wants to kill Caesar for the good of Rome. So what's this love of Rome all about? So Rome
5: is a female, right? She's the eternal city. And in the play, the person's honor for which all of these men are sacrificing themselves and their friends is Rome is this is this idea this perfect idea of this city that there is actually something beyond just a place where men live it is this uh this this ideal made out of stones and I think that's something that each production has got to handle, which is, so what is this thing around us which is better than we are? It isn't the people. The people are idiots. It isn't the politicians. The politicians are venal. But that the city is still standing and it's still beautiful.
0: Brutus is willing to do anything to protect Rome. But is that good? Should we be willing to do anything to protect our country? I mean, it doesn't work out so well for Brutus.
5: It is a play that says quite clearly, your motivations do not matter. Your tactics matter. Your tactics are where motivation hits the road. If you take up the dagger, the dagger will bring you down. And if you decide to appeal to people's fear, then the people will overwhelm you and drive you outside the city.
0: Shakespeare takes all of these themes, the inescapability of tactics, the way violence works within a political system, the unreliability of groups, decaying of norms, limits of reason, and he injects them into this story of republicanism and revolution. But there's something kind of weird about all of this. While Shakespeare was writing Julius Caesar, he didn't live in a republic. In fact, almost no one on earth lived in a republic during Shakespeare's life. So why is the Bard so interested in it? We know what republicanism meant to the Romans, we know what it means to us, but what did it mean to Shakespeare? Julius Caesar seems to speak directly to our fears in America in 2018. What was Shakespeare so afraid of? Act Two, Cry Havoc and Let Slip the Dogs of War So let's talk about what Shakespeare might have been thinking about when he wrote this play. We have to speculate a bit here because we have no notes from Shakespeare or his contemporaries about his creative process. But we do know what was going on in England in the late 16th century, and we have some idea what everyone was worried about. Imagine you're living under a queen, in a dynastic monarchy. She has no kids, and she's getting on in years. What's going to happen after she dies? If the recent past was any guide, England might have been in for a rocky time. A hundred years earlier, a succession crisis like this one had turned into a 30-year series of civil wars. Those were the Wars of the Roses. Shakespeare clearly thought about them quite a bit. Four of his first plays are about them. And Elizabeth herself had only ascended to the throne after the bloody five-year reign of her older sister Queen Mary, who had Elizabeth imprisoned for fomenting rebellion. Now, her council was rife with intrigue and competition. You could imagine the kingdom descending into chaos, factionalism, and violence. In other words, it was rational to be worried about what was going to happen when Elizabeth died. Now, you might wonder, why didn't Shakespeare write a play about that? And the answer is, he couldn't. Writing plays about contemporary politics was against the law. Every play Shakespeare wrote had to be okayed by a figure called the Master of Revels before it could be staged. And Elizabeth especially didn't want anyone speculating about the succession. So if you want to talk about this looming crisis facing your nation, you have to do it slantwise. You have to find other stories to tell in which the transition of power goes awry. I spoke with Andrew Hadfield to learn more about this. He's a professor of English at the University of Sussex and the author of this really quite wonderful book, Shakespeare and Republicanism.
6: Elizabeth, quite rightly, is very suspicious of having a lot of um, discussion of the succession because it may cause terrible instability. What it does then is, of course, make people talk about the succession in ingenious and different ways. You can't talk directly about what will happen with Elizabeth, but I think an awful lot of drama deals with um, the succession question.
0: So why does Shakespeare choose Julius Caesar specifically? Well, another thing that's happening in the 1590s is that Elizabethan England is growing really fascinated with the Roman Republic. Some of this is because the succession crisis is causing people to look around for other ideas of how a society could be organized. But it's also a literary fad. Why were the English going nuts for ancient Rome? Well, under Elizabeth, more people than ever were getting educated. And that education took place in Latin, the language of the learned. Grammar school, the only education Shakespeare had, involved reading, memorizing, and discussing Roman texts. So everyone's reading Roman history and translating Roman works, especially the great Roman thinker Cicero. Perhaps
6: the most important of all books is um, De officis of offices, which is Cicero's great treatise about what institutions are, what they should be for. And the great debate that you get with Republican thinking is what makes people virtuous? How can you make ordinary people more virtuous? Are institutions made virtuous by having lots of virtuous people serve them? Or do virtuously policed institutions make people uh, more virtuous in themselves? That's the central sort of um, Republican issue.
0: Cicero makes a cameo appearance in Julius Caesar, and he dies offstage in the fourth act, which is probably significant. The play shares Cicero's fascination with individual virtue and institutions, but Shakespeare often uses his sources by inverting them, which is what he does here. Cicero hopes that individual virtue and institutional virtue can encourage one another. After all, you're not always going to get virtuous office holders. Caesar dramatizes the opposite happening. Institutions crumble, and individual virtue crumbles right along with them.
6: Uh, That's one of the things that's at stake in the political culture of the later 1590s, is that idea of what happens when a series of stable institutions, a political regime changes. What happens when... Individual figures, mighty figures, become more powerful than the institutions within which they're contained. What you see in Julius Caesar is the institutions not working, and you see actually very, very virtuous people behaving in kind of insanely awful ways.
0: What Shakespeare's so brilliant at showing in Julius Caesar is the way this breakdown of institutions creeps into everything. Nothing works the way it's supposed to. Before the play even begins, public culture is broken down, and private culture, represented by Brutus and Caesar's strained marriages, breaks down too. The natural world rebels in the form of an unexpected storm, and Rome is visited by odd signs and portents. The day of Caesar's death, a lioness gives birth in the streets, and graves yawn open and yield up their dead. By the end of the play, even friendship is impossible. If Julius Caesar is a tragedy, it's not a tragedy because Caesar dies or Brutus dies or Cassius dies. The death that really matters here is the death of Republican Rome. To read Caesar or to see it is to be invited to a funeral
6: for a way of organizing society. What you see in Julius Caesar is a culture of spying, secrecy, underhand behavior. The conspirators all meet in the orchard where they kind of plot the death of Caesar and you're seeing all these people who would have been public figures actually retreating into the shadows. So what you're what you're witnessing is something that that is that is like a parody of political processes.
0: Public debate is supposed to be a space where differences can be resolved peacefully by a principle other than might makes right. Institutions create a public space where rational debate is possible. Shakespeare's getting these ideas from people like Plutarch, Polybius, Livy, Cicero, who were also big influences on our founding fathers and our system of government. That's one of the reasons why we often stage Caesar in times of trouble. It's a play we turn to when it feels like our own political system is being threatened. But making Caesar speak to today isn't as simple as just throwing it up in front of an audience and seeing what happens. Each generation that stages Shakespeare reinvents his work for its own era. And every time you do a Shakespeare play, you're making an argument. An argument about what the play means, and an argument about the world we live in. So what does it mean to do this play now? This is a play written under a monarchy in the 16th century, about a failing republic in the 1st century BCE. What happens when we stage it in a representative democracy in the 21st century? Act 3. In states unborn and accents yet unknown. It's important to think about staging Julius Caesar because it's a play that's become trendy again. Just last year, Shakespeare in the Park here in New York found itself in hot water because of its production of Julius Caesar, directed by Oscar Eustace here's a clip from Fox and Friends
1: Julius Caesar a Shakespeare production what did you see that surprised you and appalled you appalled? yeah well I was expecting it to be a classic rendition of Julius Caesar so when I arrived the stage was set very modern very American um, had classic American images in the background and I knew it was going to be different um, and of course we know Julius Caesar's character as the lead when that character was brought forth, and it was Donald Trump. I mean, they didn't specifically say it, but his hair, blonde, reddish, had the tie tied too long. He was obviously the leader. Um, Knowing where that was going, I was appalled.
0: You see, what Eustace decided to do was speak directly to what was going on in U.S. politics. He announced in advance that this production was his response to the election. And the form that response took was setting the play in the present day and making Caesar into a Trump-like figure. He had the whirlwind hair and the pouty-lipped gestures, the long tie and Eastern European wife. They even threw in a reference to Trump's notorious statement that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and his supporters would still embrace him. And then, of course, this very Trump-like Caesar gets murdered viciously, on stage. The men who kill him dip their hands in the blood seeping out of his body and show it to the people of Rome. It's a provocative moment, but that moment, it's in the text, and it's meant to be provocative. Stoop. Romans, stoop.
2: And let us bathe our hands in Caesar's blood up to the elbows and besmear our swords. Then... Walk we forth even to the marketplace, and, waving our red weapons
0: o'er our heads, let's all cry, peace, freedom, and liberty. The violence in Caesar as written on the page is shocking, but it's purposeful. This is a play horrified by violence and skeptical of its usefulness. Again and again, violent acts make Rome's problems worse, not better. And what about the decision to set Caesar in modern dress with a Caesar decked out like a current politician? Well, that isn't anything new. A young impresario named Orson Welles did it in the 1930s to comment on the rise of fascism. It's such a common move that in the year or two before the 2016 election, we had both a Hillary-esque Caesar at Trinity Rep in Rhode Island and an Obama-esque Caesar that toured the country. So what gives? Why do we do this with Caesar, What are directors hoping to discover? Some of this is simply because when we do Shakespeare these days, we tend to set it in the modern day. Or as Helen Shaw puts it.
5: At this point, if you see a Shakespeare where the men aren't in suits, you should call the authorities. I mean, you've been kidnapped, (laughs) you're in another place, it's, you've, I don't know, you've fallen down a rabbit hole. There's no, there is no shortage, let us say, of modern dress Shakespeare.
0: And it's easy to see why, right? Putting it in modern dress gives the production instant immediacy. Here's Rob Melrose who directed the touring production in which Caesar was cast and dressed to look like Obama.
7: In Shakespeare's time, they did it in contemporary clothes because they didn't have a sense of, you know, researching Rome on the uh, 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 on the internet and and finding the authentic costumes. You know, the the headlines can often be Rob did an Obama-esque Caesar Oscar at the Public did a Trumpian Caesar, and that can be the big takeaway. But at at the end of the day, I think um, all good directors are trying to do the play and to to do Shakespeare play and be of service to that. And the contemporary setting hopefully unlocks the text and unlocks the situation. and makes the situation clearer to an audience that you know, is able to read contemporary visuals like like a suit and a track suit, or um, what a journalist looks like.
0: And here's Tyler Dabrowski, whose 2016 production at Trinity Rep in Rhode Island portrayed Caesar as a woman in a pantsuit.
8: I wanted to see what happened when we put this, you know, centuries-old play. That depicts a historical event that happened thousands of years ago. If we put that in modern dress, and the audience would have to grapple with the themes and ideas of the play as if they were happening uh, now, you know. I think a lot of the themes and ideas in the play are sort of eternal and. They deal with things that, you know, humans and and our human civilization have been dealing with for, for thousands of years, like what it means to be in a democracy. What, is, what does it mean to be in a dictatorship? Uh, what does it mean to be governed? And I think that those are things that we still grapple with today. When Tyler was directing the play, it
0: seemed clear that Hillary Clinton would be president, and Rhode Island had recently elected its first female governor.
8: It seemed to me a good time to have that discussion about what it means to have a woman in charge. And I was also curious what that would do to the play. You know, I didn't necessarily know exactly, you know, what it would do. I was curious about diving into rehearsal and figuring that out.
0: But it turns out that the play doesn't map onto our era quite as neatly as some directors might prefer. Shakespeare was writing before the Enlightenment. So, the play just doesn't share our assumptions about the virtue of the common man or the benefits of democracy.
5: If you are a person who doesn't believe that group mind and groupthink is bad, then you will actually kind of direct yourself into a corner. Uh, That is, I think, kind of what happened for me in the Shakespeare in the Park version. So Cassius's army was wearing armbands that said resist. There were people coming out of the audience who were supposed to be, I think they were supposed to kind of remind us of Occupy Wall Street. And those are things with which the Politics of the production are in line, and yet those people were then shown to be easily led, foolish, homicidal maniacs with no self-control. And I think at that point you see the production fight itself to a standstill. The production is trying to say, look, there's wisdom in crowds, and the play is saying there is no wisdom in crowds. There just isn't.
0: There really is no way to read this play and find virtue in the people of Rome. We think of this disdain for the people as fundamentally anti-Republican. In the American Republic, elected officials represent and are accountable to their constituents, at least in theory. It's a system that presumes that the American people are basically reasonable. But as Andrew Hadfield explains, in Shakespeare's day, there wasn't really a tension between how they thought about Republicanism and contempt for the people.
6: Republicanism is not necessarily democratic. Certain forms of Republican thinking are actually very, very elitist and aristocratic in nature and don't deliberately dismiss the mob, the common man, the crowd as being not fit to to take part in Republican debates. So Rome was not a democracy. It, it was um, dependent on slave labour. Many ordinary people were cut out from its political process. It, it worked in terms of establishing Relatively wide elites, but still uh, small percentages of the population who who were who were doing things and making sure that um, the political processes worked. Most people, following that, and most people in Elizabethan England, are very very skeptical about many of the values that we are probably much more sympathetic to. Most people are terrified of mob rule. I think if you were to go back and ask most people what they feared most, did they fear tyranny or did they fear anarchy and chaos and civil war? Most people would say, oh, I'd much, I'd much rather live under a tyrant than have anarchy uh, because there's a fear of, of order collapsing. That, that is in many ways the worst thing possible. And you'll see it throughout Shakespeare that the chaos of civil war is the thing you really, really do not want.
0: So Julius Caesar is not championing the common man but it also doesn't portray elites particularly well. No one comes out of this play looking good. That kind of cynicism about humanity puts us in an awkward position if we're trying to mine Julius Caesar to understand our own democracy better. If this play can't teach us how to fix the problems we face, maybe it can at least help us to see them in a new light. Act 4. There is a tide in the affairs of men. So how does Caesar speak to us today? Clearly, that's not a question with a simple answer. I mean, representative democracy didn't exist in Shakespeare's day. But something that did exist then and will always exist so long as we have people in governments is the relationship between the personal and the political. Shakespeare points out again and again that the institutions we depend on in government, well, they're just made up of people. And the legacy of norms in politics, what the ancient Romans called mas maiorum, or the customs of our ancestors, only survives if individuals want them to. As institutions and norms erode, the quality and character of individuals matters more and more because individuals have more power within the system. And if it degenerates too much, the person in charge and the state become essentially the same thing. As King Louis XIV of France famously put it, the c'est moi, I am the state. The characters try to navigate these choppy waters using rational argument. But what if rational argument is impossible because we can never escape our emotions? That's the unsettling idea at the core of this play. Julius Caesar's first real argument is made by Cassius, the brains of the operation when it comes to killing Caesar. He's trying to persuade Brutus that Caesar must die and he can't stop fixating on his personal animus towards Caesar. Here's a bit of Cassius describing a swimming match between the two men.
3: Accoutred as I was, I plunged in and bade him follow. So, indeed, he did. The torrent roared, and we did buffet it with lusty sinews, throwing it aside and stemming it with hearts of controversy. But, ere we could arrive the point proposed, Caesar cried, Help me, Cassius or I sink. I, as Aeneas, our great ancestor, did from the flames of Troy upon his shoulder the old Anchises bear, so from the waves of Tiber did I, the tired Caesar. And this man is now become a god, and Cassius is a wretched creature, and must bend his body if Caesar carelessly but nod on him there's a
0: rational point being made here. Caesar doesn't deserve to be king, or to be so revered. He's a very fallible man, and Cassius knows this because he saved Caesar's life during that swimming match. But there's also a petty emotional point being made here. Cassius is saying, in essence, I kicked his ass, and now I'm supposed to obey him? These two points can't be separated. This is why Brutus' stoicism is so important to the play, and why the other characters keep bringing it up. As a stoic, he should be more rational than anyone else. But over the course of the play, Brutus's stoicism is shown to be a kind of performance. He's play-acting at being dispassionate. Shakespeare was himself an actor, although we don't know what parts he played in his shows. He was obsessed with performance. It's perhaps the dominant theme of his work. And in Julius Caesar, performance is one of the vehicles that drives Roman society off a cliff. The play suggests that when politics becomes a competition to see who can get the most applause from the crowd, you are in deep trouble. It's almost inevitable that a skilled demagogue like Mark Antony will take center stage. But it never occurs to Brutus that this will happen. So you might wonder if Brutus' reputation was deserved, or if maybe the conspirators made a bad bet on him. Well, in Shakespeare's day, Caesar and Brutus were well-known, almost mythic figures. It's kind of like Abe Lincoln or Wyatt Earp are to us. Caesar stood as a kind of ideal monarchist, and Brutus as the ideal republican. And with both men, Shakespeare shows them as human by playing up their fallibility. He gives us a Caesar who bickers with his wife and suffers from epilepsy and isn't particularly bright. And he shows us a Brutus who doesn't seem to know up from down. Both men, the great military leader and the great senator, have become obsolete and neither realizes it. Mark Antony is the future because what matters now is performance, charisma, the ability to give a good speech and move the crowd. When I reread Julius Caesar, it's this reduction of politics to performance that feels so prescient. Caesar suggests that politics becomes purely performative when it has been rotted out from the inside, leaving only the veneer. But what it doesn't suggest is any way to rebuild that hollow core once it's gone. The conspirators think that they can use violence to forestall the end, but violence only hastens it. There's not a lot of hope in Caesar. It's more like a cautionary tale, and its central warning is to those of us like Brutus who dwell in certainty. Every time Brutus is certain about something, he's wrong. He thinks he understands the world. He believes that he can see the political landscape better than anyone. Brutus thinks that you can employ any tactic and not have it ruin you if your motives are pure. He thinks the public can be relied upon to listen to reason. And by the time he realizes he's wrong, It's too late. Over the course of this podcast, we're going to be digging into six of Shakespeare's plays. Richard II, King Lear, Measure for Measure, Othello, and Coriolanus. If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll get a bonus episode every month featuring a roundtable discussion about the play. In this month's episode, I'll be joined by Vanity Fair film critic Kay Austin Collins and Dorothy Fortenberry, writer for The Handmaid's Tale. You can find out more at slate.com slash Shakespeare. I'd like to thank my guests for this episode. Andrew Hadfield, Helen Shaw, Tyler Debrasky, and Rob Melrose. The excerpts from Julius Caesar you heard today were read by Will Sturdivant, Sid Solomon, and Daryl Lathan. If you want to read ahead, our second episode comes out June 12th. We'll be talking about Richard II. Let Me Your Ears is produced by Chow Tu, and Slate Plus's editorial director is Gabriel Roth, who doth bestride our narrow recording studio like a colossus. Until next time, I'm Isaac Butler. Thanks for listening.